Well, good morning. Uh, Dr. Jerry Foster, one of the physicians who happens to attend fellowship, uh, told me last night he's deploying. In fact, they left this morning uh, with a group of medical doctors to Nepal. Uh, You know about the earthquake that happened in Nepal, Kathmandu, uh, 2,000 plus confirmed dead. That will grow, unfortunately, but there will be a lot of people that are injured. He'll be there for three weeks with that medical team, and there might be others in this body who will go from Vanderbilt, Belmont, uh, from uh, um, Centennial, other hospitals. You might go out there. So uh, we want to pray for you and um, for that ministry and for the families left behind when when mom or dad is uh, gone that long, but it's a great ministry that uh, he's doing and others are doing, and many of you have done those type of tours before as uh, physicians and nurse practitioners and other uh, medical personnel. Uh, we applaud you for doing those kinds of things. 9.35, right now in the barn, we're beginning a new study on discipleship. We did this a few weeks back with Mike Vogt, who taught on the Word, as Lloyd, Bill, uh, Rob Sweet, and I were teaching on the Word. We had a, a little bit more information going on in the barn, in the study over there, and Mark uh, begins today, Mark Irving, on discipleship. So if you wanted, you could sneak out right now and go over there. It wouldn't bother me at all. Um, but uh, Mark will be teaching for four weeks. It's a great opportunity for you to connect with other people as well as to go further in a subject that we can't go in a one-hour uh, message uh, time, service time on Sundays so, or Saturdays. So we encourage you to check that out maybe next week, 9.35. Um, Lastly, Rob Sweet last week uh, began Genesis 12, reviewing the covenant. And I must say it was one of the finest pieces of exposition I've heard in a very long time. Uh, And I I put that against anyone. Uh, It was a great work. If you were not here, I can't encourage you strongly enough to go online and listen or watch that message. God's original and final intent from the from the garden to a city, he said, to be God's people in God's place with God's presence. And he did a marvelous job explaining the beginning of this patriarch's life, and it lays a great foundation for all that we're going to do in our study on Abram. Faith always comes down to a test. Faith, as we differentiated a few weeks ago, we're not talking about the point in time faith when you trust in Christ and Christ alone. We're talking about the faithful life we live after we've trusted Christ, how we obey God, how we live faithfully in a culture that is faithless. And so we want to look at the life of Abram to see how this great patriarch, also a flawed character, a clay feet, human being, made lots of mistakes, but he is referred to by Christ and by the New Testament as the man of faith. If you want a picture of faith, look at Abram. So we want to study why that is. But faith always comes down to a test. I said it many times before. In my experience, you may have a different experience. You may be far more spiritual than me, and you may be more godly than me. But I will tell you, in my experience of the Christian life, I do not trust God and have faith in God when my health is good, my marriage is good, my job is is good, my children are civil, getting along, when no one's mad at me or attacking me, when the weather's been like it's been the last three or four days, um, money in the bank, like my job, Cindy and I love each other, I don't need God. I really don't. Touch my health, touch my marriage, touch my children, touch my job, Give me difficult people in my life. 
then I wonder where God is. That's the American Western notion of Christianity. If we can check the boxes that are all things are going well, we don't need Christ. We don't need a faithful life. We just want more of the same. We want to live happily ever after. Again, you may not live there. I live there. If life's working according to the way Michael wants it to work, I really don't. I mean, Christ is the icing on the cake. My spiritual life is the icing on the cake. My spiritual life is a fun part of it all. I learn. I love to learn and read and study. So what? Big whoop. Am I living faithfully? Perhaps the challenge of Williamson County and living in a prosperous area, even though you may not feel prosperous, you are, part of living in that world is how are we faithful when we can check the boxes? Now, here's the frightening corollary. Does God allow the troubles in our health, in our marriage, in our children, in our workplace, in, our, in the injustices that happen to us in life, the lawsuits, the problems we have with other people? Does God allow those so we are drawn to depend on him? Faith is always a test do we trust God in a situation where we cannot leverage something to fix it? If I have a money problem, I can leverage money to fix it. If I have a deductible on my health plan, I can leverage money to fix it. If I have a problem with my children, I can leverage special ed teachers, counselors, other people to come along help, inside of help, youth leaders. If I have a problem in marriage sin, I can talk to somebody. If I have a problem with my job, I can change my job or change my job role. When we bring those circumstances to bear and we can't fix it, that what I would call, that's where we have to trust God. That's where the, we're over the edge now. We've got to trust God. Well, we can continue spinning our wheels trying to make it work. But sometimes we come to the end of our sufficient resources and we can't fix the problem. That's where the edge of faith perhaps begins for too many of us. Circumstances mitigate against our faith. Chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 10 in your Bible. Chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 10 in your Bible. The first test of Abram's faith. Abram's been told by Yahweh Elohim, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all, that he is going to be a blessing to the world. He's given him a unilateral, unconditional promise. You will be a blessing. I am going to use you to bless the entire world from time immemorial. And the first thing we find then, the test that he is going to encounter is a famine. If you look at chapter 12, verse 10, you'll notice they're going to go down to Egypt. Let me read the first strophe. Now there was a famine in the land, in, so that Abram went down to Egypt. Now drop down to chapter 13, verse 1 for just a second. 13, verse 1 says, so Abram went up from Egypt. Now in my Bible, I have a line that connects down to Egypt from verse 10 all the way down to verse 13, chapter, chapter 13, verse 1, up from Egypt. This is a unit. This is the way the writer, Moses, under God's inspiration, this is the way he's crafting a story that was told for the ear first, but for us to read it, these are markers. Technically, we might call it a pericope. This bracket's a story. It's like, don't miss it. And a careful reader, you don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to read Hebrew or Greek. You just have to read carefully and slowly. 
And you will start to catch these things. Abram goes down to Egypt, chapter 13, verse 1. He's going to come up from Egypt. So just keep that as a marker. Let's look at the first three verses, verse 10 and following. Now there was a famine in the land, so that Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt, that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. The first test, we might call it, of Abram's faith is a famine. The story is meant to build tension for the reader or the hearer. We're so perhaps familiar with the story or removed from the story, we don't feel it. The early, the ancients would feel a tension in the story. God just made him a great promise and now there's a famine. A famine is not an inconvenience, it is life-threatening. The text tells us a famine, a severe famine. A famine essentially meant there was no rainfall. And if you spend any time in Israel or the Middle East, you get rain. Israel is not about oil or wealth or enemies. Israel is about water. Without water, it does not exist. When it rains or has dew in the wilderness, it turns spring green in the desert of all places. You keep rain away, it's parched and arid, and it's a desert like any desert you've ever seen. Without rain, there are no crops. Without crops, you can't feed livestock. Ergo, you have a famine. In antiquity, what you did in a famine was you went to where the food was. A sojourn isn't just a trip to go to the grocery store and fill up a Costco and bring your cargo back to Israel. In antiquity, you went and lived there for a while. It would not be unlike people that are snowbirds and they have a home in Michigan and it's a beautiful place for six weeks. (laughs) Then they flee to Florida and they go back and forth with the seasons because they don't want to live during that insufferable winter. And so you're going for a season because why? Even if you go to Egypt where there's, there's crops and livestock, it may take a while. It's going to be a journey, number one. He's got an entourage with him, number two. It wasn't a two-week trip. This is months, if not longer, that he is going to sojourn down to Egypt. Egypt is going to be a prominent theme. We'll talk about it in a few moments, but Egypt is a huge theme in the whole story of Israel. Now, the things he's concerned about, the tension in the story is there's a famine, and now I'm afraid for my life. Because when I go to Egypt, I will have no rights. I'm, a, I'm not even an Israelite. Yes, I'm a Canaanite, technically, I guess you'd say, or, or a Chaldeite. Uh, he's going to go to Egypt where he's a foreigner. He will stick out. He will have no rights. He knows Egypt well enough to know that his wife is gorgeous and she will be taken into Pharaoh's royal courthouse and she'll be put in his harem. He's afraid of that. He's afraid of his life. They're going to kill me. So you lie so that they don't kill me. And we'll look at his statement for, uh, in a moment. Now, the scheme is important. The scheme is first recorded here in Genesis 12. It occurs again in Genesis chapter 20. And that's with Abimelech or Avimelech. Abimelech means the son of Molech, or my father is Molech. And he will pull the same stunt there. If it's not bad enough, in chapter 26, his son Isaac will pull the same stunt. Hebrew repetition is important as a teacher because we forget. 
I often say I read the Bible, and morning by morning, new verses I read. I've never read that before. I've read it a hundred times, but I don't remember it. So the Hebrew repeated things again and again and again. So 12, 20, 26. 26 is a compelling story because it's Isaac, the son, pulling this stunt. And it's his wife, Rebecca. Do you remember Rebecca? Was very beautiful. So the author, God, the big author, God, A, is teaching the little author who writes this, in this case, Moses, for you and me to read and hear the story to remember the consequences of these half-truths, which are whole lies. Well, look carefully at what he says in verse 13. Look at your Bible. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me. There's two clauses. One, it may go well with me because of you. Two, that I may live because of you. In a sense, he's putting the burden on her. If you lie, I'll live on account of me, on account of me. Don't be too hard on Abram. I think Abram got the fact that he was important in God's plan. Does he understand the full ramifications of this blessing? No, of course not. He will as time goes on. But God has appeared to him and told him, you're going to be a blessing. Leave your, and he, he's left or the Chaldees, he's following God to a place he's going to show him. And the way God moves him is how? A famine. The resources are gone, Abram. You can't feed your family anymore. What are you going to do? Unfortunately, the record gives us no information about prayer. No information about calling out to God. What do I do? Scripture is silent. We can't overinterpret that. But the motivation is very clear that it might go well with me, that I might live on account of you. Self-preservation, more than that, because if he dies, the promise dies. So at one hearing, the audience would understand, if God just made this promise to Abram and he dies down there, what happens to the promise? This is a different promise. It's a unilateral, unconditional promise. Abram, you will be a blessing. Abram, I will use you. Abram didn't say, okay, Lord, I'll sign the contract. God is going, you, you could say carefully, he's a pawn in God's program. God is going to pull something off through Abram, even in spite of his unfaithfulness, even in spite of his sinfulness, even in spite of his failures. And he will become referred to as one of the greatest men of faith in Scripture. Well, look at the deception and how it jeopardizes the promise. Verse 14 and following. It came about when Abram came into Egypt. The Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake. Look at verse 13. On account of you, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. The deception jeopardizes the promise, but it reaps Abram great wealth. Now, Sarai's beautiful, uh, uh, beauty is legendary in Scripture. She's referred to this a number of times. Um, what we have here at one level is we have powerful rulers who do what they want and take what they want. If you remember Genesis chapter 6, a somewhat controversial passage about when the, the sons of God took uh, women from the daughters of men, and there's a lot of hyperbole written about that passage. That passage, I would argue, means the despots or princes or rulers who had amalgamated power and possessions. They overstepped their bounds and they took wives. You might call it harems. 
Now we have it here in this section where the, we see the Egyptian side of it, where Pharaoh's taking beautiful women. You can't stop him. If a bunch of armed Egyptians show up and say, uh, the Pharaoh would like to meet your sister, wife, whatever, you say yes or you're dead. It's not America. He can't call the embassy. He's on his own. And so she is turned over. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel, they want a king and Samuel's talking with God and they, they, can you believe you read it? You can't believe it. We want to be like other nations and have a king. And Samuel talks to God and God says, give him the king, but tell him something. Tell him this. He's going to take your children, your land, your possessions, because kings have to build armies and protect themselves. Samuel warned them of that. And then in 2 Samuel 8, we read the tragic story of David who takes something that's not his. He had wives. He had concubines. Scripture's silent on judging him for it. And he saw another one and wanted her. Rulers, powerful rulers, can take what's not theirs. We're not privy to the conversation. The tension for the reader, for the hearer, is intended to build suspense. We don't know all we'd like to know, but we know what we need to know from Scripture. Look again at verse 16. Read the result of his lie. He treated Abram well for her sake, and he gave him and then this litany of possessions. The portrayal is of great wealth. This is not a small this is not a few livestock and a couple of servants. He gave him enough livestock that he needed plural male and female servants to manage the flocks and herds. This is an opulent gift. This is a Pharaoh giving him a lot for a very beautiful woman that he's going to include in the royal harem. And so Abram goes in, a stranger who's starving and is going to come out a very wealthy man with lots of livestock and servants to help him care for and tend all those livestock. In antiquity, he's become super wealthy. He's a one percenter for sure in antiquity. But he lost Sarai. Disobedience in God's plan is not a small thing. The husband and wife relationship is unique in scripture. One man, one woman for life. That's how God designed it and intended it and it hasn't changed. And he is now risked, put in jeopardy, that relationship by letting Sarah be taken. Did it require more or less faith to lie about Sarah being his sister or to go in and see if God would protect him, which requires more faith? It's, it's a r- ridiculous question from a human level, but that's the question. Do we trust God when the circumstances, we don't have the resources to bring to bear to fix the problem, do I trust God in the middle of it? That's when faith makes up its mind. Well, God protects the patriarch and the promise, verses 17 and following, but the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Just as Abram had anticipated, uh, the Egyptians were smitten by her beauty. They take her. 
but he did not expect what was going to happen as God protects her. Uh, The intervention is interesting because God strikes Egypt with plagues, severe plagues. We're not told what they are here. Go forward in time to the Israelites who are in captivity in Egypt because of their failure at Kadesh Barnea, their stubbornness, excuse me, because of their failure after Mount Sinai. They're now in captivity in Egypt and and in slavery, they're going to watch these 10 plagues occur toward the end of that 430 years. Do you think there were enough corporate memory in the patriarch's minds who were in that wilderness wandering, who who were in, 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 excuse me, in slavery that would recall this happened to Abraham and Sarai. When they were in captivity in Egypt, God used plagues to get them out of Egypt. Should they have been surprised when God used plagues to get Israel out of Egypt one more time? God's hand against Pharaoh is a major motif in our Old Testament. At the highest level, you have Pharaoh who claims to be God-man on earth. There are some 8,000 different idols that have been identified in Egyptian religious systems. Israel is a monotheistic system. Lord your God is one. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall only worship the Lord your God. Monotheism versus polytheism. Pharaoh is the God-man on earth. He's deity. That's why we have pyramids, because you bury deity in very elaborate graves. God is one God. But don't miss the bigger parallel. God and Pharaoh are going to have a fight of a kind. The literature is polemic. They're going to fight each other in literature. When they're in captivity, whether it's here or during their enslavement in Egypt, they're going to fight each other. Who's God? Is Pharaoh God or is Yahweh Elohim God? Who is this God that sent you to tell me to let my people go? Who do you think you are? I'm God on earth. I'm the God man. I'm deity. You're slaves to me. And the plagues culminate in the most astonishing story of irony, the death of the firstborn. We know it too well. We forget the importance of it. The death of the firstborn is this. God saying to Pharaoh, you try to kill my son, Israel. You try to kill my people by enslaving them and killing them. You try to kill my son, I'll kill your son. That's the final plague. The death of the firstborn. Why is the firstborn important? Because that was Pharaoh's heir. That was the next God man. So it's all teed up. All the plagues are teed up to the final God, the big God, Pharaoh. You think you're God? I'm going to kill your God. You're going to try and kill my son? I'm going to kill your son. Now fast forward. God brings the fully God man, the son of God, and he says, you kill my son because that's the only way you can satiate the problem of your sin. So from the beginning of the Egyptian and Israel conflict is a picture of, is Yahweh Elohim God or is the world's view of God God? And it couldn't be more poignant than this Pharaoh image of a God-man and the God-man, Jesus Christ, will come and die and come back from the dead to prove he is the God-man. The only way for them to be saved is for God to intervene. God's going to have to intervene to save Sarah. God is going to have to intervene to save Israel again and again. And God is going to have to intervene to save you and me. You and I do not have the resources of life to save ourselves. We have resources, we can use them, and you've got to step back on your life and say, do I really have the resources to pull all this off? Answer, no. 
We can build really good security systems. I hope you have. I have. But all it takes is touch. All it takes is one big tectonic shift in the market. All it takes is losing our job. All it takes is cancer. When does faith make up its mind? The consequences of our sin are not often expunged. Sometimes the consequences of our sin are long-lasting. It seems to me, and I want to emphasize the word seems to me, God's mercy extends when we're, let's just say it this way, when we're kind of stupid. When we're kind of stupid, he extends mercy. When we're really stupid, we're going to suffer consequences. Now, I said seems. I can't say it big enough or loud enough. Seems to me. Don't put this in pen, in pen in your Bible. Write it in pencil on a piece of paper and throw it away. It seems to me the mercy and grace of God and the ebb and flow of our stupidity is pretty wonderful. He doesn't give us all we deserve. He's very gracious and kind and forgiving and a lot of things in life. Sometimes we're really stupid and we're going to live with some consequences. When you live with those consequences, you still have to live by faith. It doesn't absolve you and me. God may rescue us from all kinds of, I mean, the unintended consequences of our sin are innumerable. We'll never know this side of eternity, all the things, and maybe God will be so gracious like a parent, he won't remind us of it when we're in heaven. You really were a jerk for all those years till I straightened you out. I don't think God's going to deal with us that way, fortunately. But when it gets to hubris and rebellion and trying to be God, when we thumb our nose at God's word intentionally and we don't care about the consequence, we may live with some consequences. doesn't mean we can't come back to God and by grace and faith and mercy, he's kind to us and we live faithfully, but we might limp. And that limp's a good reminder if we fast forward. What's at stake for Sarai and for Abram is God's word. Used to be we grew up in churches that talked about the promises of God. We used to sing hymn about the promises of God. That language is arcane today. We don't use that word anymore. The promises of God, what, what are they saying? God says something, you can stake your life on it. That's a promise of God. Abram was given an extraordinary promise of God. You're going to be a blessing to the world. I'm going to give you descendants of the sand of the sea. They're going to be in there. Abram, if you can count the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. I'm still waiting on a son 40 years later. Do you believe me, Abram? Not unlike Moses. He's going to only see a very small part of God's promise, but he's going to live faithfully in spite of the experiential voice of otherwise. Pharaoh's rebuke in verse 18 to 20 is stinging. What is this you have done to me? Again, if you're a careful Bible reader, that might sound very familiar to Genesis 3.13 after the woman has eaten the fruit and God confronts her and says, what is this you have done? So a very similar phrase. What is this you've done to me? The Pharaoh adds. The reader can't miss the connection. The earlier obedience ended in guilt and ruin. This one's going to end in a marred reputation. Verse 19, here is your wife. Now, We don't know, and there's lots of endless speculation, and speculation is just that. There's no point even talking about it, but everybody wants to know, did she, was she part of the consort? Was she in the harem? We don't know, but I'm going to pin my hope on the phrase, verse 19, here's your wife, 
suggesting she has not become Pharaoh's wife in a technical sense. We know from Esther, which would have a Persian influence in the storyline, that Esther is a long time before she would ever meet the king and be a consort or have any type of sexual relationship with the king. So more than likely during this sojourn period, uh, Sarah, we might say, is a long way from ever meeting Pharaoh. But when the plagues strike, they're scratching their heads going, what's happened that we have these plagues in Egypt right now? And it doesn't take long for them. We don't know the backstory to connect the dots. It must be this woman. And upon inquiry, he finds out, of course, that, yeah, she's his half-sister, but she's his wife. And on account of that, Abram is escorted to the border. It's really an expulsion from Egypt. They're pushing him out. But the text is cryptic because it's just an all that belonged to him. So all the acquisition of wealth that Pharaoh had given him stayed with him. Go forth from your country. Chapter 12, 19, take her and go. Stinging. It's the same verb that God used when he said, go forth from your country. We came down to Egypt because of the famine. Now we're going to come out of Egypt because of the same stinging verb rebuke. One is, go be the people of God that I want you to be and be that nation. I must get out of Egypt and don't come back here. So the bookend is powerful. C.H. Gordon says, this is a most unheroic episode. Fast forward in your mind, out of Egypt, I will call my son. Egypt is going to play a role all the way through the New Testament. Because will the God-man Pharaoh be the God of the people and that can be syncretous to all religions or will Yahweh Elohim and his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinitarian God had won. Will they be God? And that's the battle. Let's think about this passage as we end in two levels, the divine and the human. From the divine level, God is going to make a nation out of Abram and Sarai. He's chosen two individuals. Do not forget, after uh, the, the flood, the flood came because of man's wickedness. It had gotten so, so toxic, we might say, that God says, I'm done with humanity. And he creates a global flood to destroy the wickedness of humanity. And he saves a remnant in an ark and Noah and his family. Then we see an explosive growth in, by chapter 10 of Genesis over a period of years. We've got lots of people at the table of nations. And from that, of course, we'll see the Abraham tribe begin. Abram, Abraham, Sarah, Sarai, Sarah will happen. And God will rebuild another people group. The program of God can't be stopped even by sinful men. Nothing is going to thwart God's plan. Now, sin can certainly complicate our life. Listen to me carefully. Sin does not thwart God's plan. To say it very practically at the divine level, nothing is going to stop God's program. Now, let's talk about the human element for a moment. Can your life and mine thwart God's plan? No. Can your life and mine thwart God's will for your life. This one will keep you awake at night. Do you think living pell-mell in sin and defiance and rebellion to God is going to thwart his will for your life? Certainly complicate things for us on a human level. If we live in sin and we break our marriage vows and we're licentious and we lie and we cheat and we steal and we're pugnacious people and we're just generally jerks in life, we can make life miserable. Is God's plan thwarted in your life? Is he the sovereign creator, sustainer of the universe? Yes. Does he know your life and mine inside and out? 
Yes. Does he sanction our sin? No. Does he know our sin? You bet. This is the weird stuff I lay awake and I'm wondering about. Can I thwart God's will for my life? I'm not saying you blindfold yourself and go out on 65 and wander around and uh, spin around the traffic and see if you know, get killed or not. That's stupidity times 10, right? Don't go there. Think with me for a minute. What is Abram, what have they just done? They've jeopardized their lives. He jeopardized his wife's purity. He jeopardized the future nation of Israel, and God intervenes. That doesn't mean we intentionally go into situations hoping God's going to deliver us. That's stupidity times 10. But the question is, how sovereign, you can't even ask the question, how sovereign is God? We're not pawns. We have a certain amount of free will in our sin, but God stops us sometimes when we go too far, doesn't he? I've seen that. Maybe you have as well. After the commandments are given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and people have come out. They've gone up to the mountain. Oh, Moses is 40 days, 40 nights. And it's not just the two tablets only. He gets the law of God. I would argue he gets all of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. All that law, that corpus of the law is given to Moses while he's on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The abbreviated version for the people are the Ten Commandments. Two stone tablets, probably one to ten on each tablet, not one to five and six to ten like you saw in Sunday school. Probably, this, probably a copy. He brings them down. And of course, at first, what? He finds them making a gold idol. Remember what happened? The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, they're an obstinate people. Now let me alone and my anger may burn against them and I will destroy them and I will make for you a great nation. He just got them out. They're at Mount Sinai. The glory of God had descended on the mountain. Moses gets the law of God. Now we're going to go forward as a people of God. And God says, I'm going to destroy. Step aside, Moses and Aaron. I'm going to destroy these people. He did it once with the flood. He could do it again. And Moses intercedes. It's a marvelous prayer that Moses prays. You can worry about God changing his mind. Don't miss the story. The story is Moses says, paraphrase, the word will get back to Pharaoh that you brought your people out here to kill him. And that will affect your name. And you made a promise to your people, Lord, may I remind you. That you're going to make a great nation out of them. And he goes back to the patriarch, Abram. And God changed his mind. You can spend your whole life worrying about that phrase. Don't worry about it. Take it on faith. God did not execute judgment. That's the point. Not whether God changes his mind in your life and mine. Abram is protecting the covenant of God, but he's also harming the covenant of God. And that's the storyline of this great man of faith. God is going to protect the promise in spite of his people. He did it with Abram. He did it with, Egypt, with Israel later on, again and again. Because he's going to bring his son with or without Israel's cooperation. And in fact, when his son comes and he comes to his own and his own knows him not, did he not do that in spite of them? Alan Ross writes, the purity of Sarai was in danger. The future of the covenant was in jeopardy. God prevents harm toward her or the covenant, reflecting the greater promise of his covenant. By the way, if you're a Bible student, BSF or precept person, uh, person that 
likes to study scripture. It was a one volume called Creation and Blessing by Alan Ross. Creation and Blessing. It's a one volume commentary on Exodus, on Genesis. It's, it's extraordinary. He was one of my Hebrew professors, one of the hardest professors I ever had. But uh, he writes exquisitely. And if you want to study Genesis in some detail, Creation and Blessing by Alan Ross. Well, self-deliverance is impossible. That's the moral of the story. Our schemes, our plans, our ideas, when the props are knocked out, we're going to marshal, we're going to leverage this and do that. And I, I can get resources to fix that problem. I got health insurance. We've got this self-reliance and self-deliverance only will take us so far. And it seems to me that God's going to bring things in your life and mine that we can't figure out. And that's when faith makes up its mind. Abraham deceived Pharaoh, he endangered Sarai, he endangered the covenant on a human level, but he becomes rich. So what do you do with the moral of the story? Look at it again. He's given all these possessions in verse 16, oxen, donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. In verse 20, he sends it away and all that belonged to him. So now he comes out wealthy. Male and female servants, unnamed but I would put 99% likelihood one of those female servants is named Hagar. And as we go forward and you know the story, this is where the problem gets gigantic with the birth of Ishmael. And those two factions will wage war and hate each other all through Israel's history. Isaac, Ishmael, which one? Oh that, I, oh, that Ishmael would walk before you. No, you will have a son. Sometimes wonderful things do not mean they are good for us. Wouldn't make the direct connection to it, but I would suggest ill-gotten gain. Deception and gain may have led to the rest of the story. Well, the framework is he goes down to Egypt. Now he's going to come up out of Egypt. Don't overwork it, but don't miss it. He's gone down in a poor decision. Now he's coming up, and God's going to care for him and protect him. And he's going to learn what it means to be that faithful servant of Christ. So for you and me, do you trust him even when it doesn't make sense? And more, more disconcerting, if you're not trusting him, back to my opening comments about we really don't need him until things go wrong, when something goes wrong, and God is sovereign yet, is he trying to get your attention? Faith is confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen. I trust God for something I don't have the resources to fix. I'm over the edge of my ability to bring anything sufficient to solve the problem. And when you're faced with that in your marriage, in your children, in your health, in your business, in litigation, in, in your practice, whatever it is, might that be the opportunity where the edge where God's saying, are you going to trust me or are you going to try and do this yourself? The corollary is kind of scary. But maybe it will give us the courage to face it with faith, not with fear. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, Lord. I don't know. I, I've made mistakes. I've lied. I've sinned. I've made bad choices. I'm arrogant. Whatever it is, own it. Acknowledge it. Do not run away from your sin nature. Own it and claim it and acknowledge it. I was wrong. I don't know what to do. And see what he will do. 
That's faith. When all the circumstances and all the props are knocked out, you have no resources to do it. In your singleness, in your divorce, in your sexuality, in the torture emotionally that you face, in the injustices that have happened at work, in the unkind, evil things people have said and done to you, family relationships that will just eat your lunch, a parent with incredible illness. I have a dear friend who's on her fourth round of breast cancer. Four t- Who has breast cancer four times? And I've never met a person who smiles at the future knowing her death is very near. And she's more bold about her faith and talking to her friends and her kids and a single parent, by the way, long divorced, And she loves Christ passionately. It's going to happen to all of us at some point. Don't be discouraged. Will you have faith? If he's brought you here today, was he faithful till now? Will you trust him to be faithful tomorrow? Father, we love you. We want to love you well. We are Well, many of us are poor at trusting you in between. We want things, we work hard for things, we acquire them, we succeed. You bless us in ways far beyond what we deserve, and we thank you for that. May we not rest on that. May we not rest on accomplishment or our past, but may we rest on a future that, although uncertain, you are certain. A future that you have made a promise that you will be with us that your word is ever available. Your spirit indwells us to remind us. Help us to be men and women of great courage and faith because of you, not because of our own abilities. And may we be able to smile at the future even when we don't know the outcome because you're a loving, kind, merciful, and faithful God. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great, faithful week. God bless you.